All right, so I'm really excited for this morning because Hebrews is one of my favorite books in the Scripture, especially in the New Testament. Uh, I love the book of Hebrews. I spent some time in college actually studying this book individually, and so it's exciting for me to share it. And the reason I love this book so much is because it points to this fact that Jesus is better, and the author of Hebrews uh, spends some time working on that. Uh, If you are new with us, if, if you're brand new to Bethany, Uh, One of the things we offer here is this thing here. It's called the Known Reading Journal. Uh, If you're not new and you have this and you want to follow along, um, page 12 is where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, But if you'd like one of these, I believe there's still some out on the the board there. If you walk out these doors, go to the right. uh, You're welcome to to grab that. It's a great way to uh, work through the scriptures uh, along with us throughout the week. It lays out a quiet time for you if you would like to do that. Uh, so the book of Hebrews, I uh, want to tell you a little bit, set the, set the foundation for this book so you have a little bit of the background. Uh, one of the things that's unique about Hebrews is that we don't know who the author of this book is or this letter. Um, some would suggest it's Paul. Some would suggest Barnabas. And then there's many others along the way. Others have suggested that Paul actually wrote it in Hebrew and then Luke later translated it into Greek. But we just don't know, and you can find some. You can find somebody to agree with just about anything. Uh, but I would say this. I would say this. The the thing that is important about this book is who's receiving the book, and it's far more important than who wrote the book. Um, one of the things that you will find as you write a letter, who you're writing that letter to determines what you put in the letter. Right. So I could write, "I am captured by your beauty." And I would never give that to Pastor Adam, all right? It would be inappropriate on so many levels for me to write that and give that to him. And if I gave that to him, I'm sure he would call me into his office and we'd have a frank come to Jesus conversation. But I would write that and have written that on many occasions to my wife. And when I, I have given those letters to Aaron, I don't sign my name at the end of it. And why don't I sign my name at the end of it? Because... The context of the letter, what's written in that, I hope no one else would write that to her. Uh, But what's in there is important and what she would receive it. She knows immediately what she's reading is coming from me. Also the location where it's placed, the time, all of those things are important as to determining who wrote the letter. Well, I believe in the book of Hebrews, the original audience, and this is something that most of us never think about when we read the scriptures. But there was an author who was writing, and there was an audience in who he was writing to. And so the audience of the book of Hebrews would have received this. They would have known without question who was writing it and what they were writing about. So I think that's important. So what we know about the book of Hebrews is we know that the audience was a group of Hebrew Jewish Christians, all right, Jewish Christians, who lived roughly 20 to 30 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason that this is so important is because those believers, this group of Jewish Christians, were in a very unique point in history because all through the Old Testament, the Jews were putting their faith in a Messiah who was to come. Now, oftentimes they would walk away from God and reject God. We don't have time to go into all that. But they were putting their faith in a Messiah who was to come. And now Jesus has come, he's died, he's resurrected, he's, he's risen back to life, he's ascended into heaven, and they've changed so much, and that's what this book lays out, so much of the Old Testament system, Jesus has uh, come and not abolished the law, but he's 
he's fulfilled it. So now there's not a need to do this sacrificial stuff like sacrificing animals because Jesus has come and has been the sacrifice. And so there's this temptation of these Jewish believers of, ah, did we get this right or should we go back to the old system? And the writer in Hebrews is writing them and pleading with them saying, Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. He's better than that system. And pay attention to who Jesus is. And so that's what he says. Jesus is better. So if you would with me open up uh, your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. There we go. And if you are new to the scriptures, uh, we, have some, we have a Bible there. If you didn't bring one, feel free to grab one in the pews there. And in those Bibles will be on page 1009. And we're going to work through mainly the first four verses of chapter 1. We're going to look uh, at some of the other passages. We're going to go all the way through chapter 2. But the main focus here is going to be um, Hebrews 1 through 4. And so one of the things I would say, too, just to, to mention this, that you would, so what I just said about the original audience and, and the author, one of the beautiful things about Scripture and makes God's Word so unique is that God inspired all 66 books. God inspired all 66 letters. And so they are just as relevant to us today as we sit here as they were 2,000 years ago to those Jewish believers who received it. So I wanted to make that emphasis uh, that we remember that. So you might ask the question, what is Jesus better than? Because that's, the, uh, that's what we have is Jesus is better. Well, what is he better than? And I would, ask, I would say to you, you name it, and he is. He goes through here and he says Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. He's better than any religion that's ever been thought up. And so I want to just jump in here, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm not going to get very far because I want to highlight some things to you. But we'll read all through verse 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. I want to stop right here because we don't want to miss this. Long ago, God spoke. Right? This is really important because a lot of people in our world today and in our culture want to say that God is some kind of intellectual idea that we've conjured up within our own minds. All right? That we talk about intelligent design and we can't, some people say, well, we can't possibly know who that God is. But God doesn't give us that room because what he says here is God spoke. And just by speaking, what does that mean? God wants to communicate with us. He wants to communicate with us. So he's not some intellectual idea, but he's a God that wants to be involved in our lives every single day. He wants to be here with us, speaking to us. And so God spoke. And how did he speak? He spoke through the prophets. I think one of the things we might ask, one of the questions we might ask is, I've asked this anyway, why doesn't God just speak verbally, out loud? It would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? If we just heard God's booming voice come from the heavens and say, this is what I want you to do, it would be so much easier to follow him. But I would ask the question, would it really be that much easier to follow him? Would we listen? Because as I was thinking about this week, I thought, you know what, God did speak that way. God walked in the garden of Eden, Genesis 1, 2, 3. He walked with Adam and Eve. He talked to them verbally. They could see him. They could hear his voice. Did they listen? No. 
So they could hear his voice, but they still didn't listen. They still rebelled against him. So God changes things, and he says, all right, you're not going to listen to me. I'm going to speak through my prophets. I'm going to speak directly into the hearts of men that they would come and speak to you and proclaim my word to you. So all through the Old Testament, that's what we find. Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, you go through all of them. He speaks through the prophets. And what happens to the prophets? Many of them, in Elijah's day anyway, all of them were killed. I remember Elijah saying, I'm the last one left. I don't think being a prophet of God would be one of the jobs I would want to sign up for because many of them were killed because of the message that God was speaking through them. And so then you come to this in verse 2. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. So don't miss this. So he speaks verbally to Adam and Eve. He sends the prophets, and now he speaks through his son. And one of the things that we could be tempted to look at and we could miss is we might say, well, all right, if I open the word of God and I open Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, I can find a lot of the words that Jesus spoke, and that is true. We can look at what Jesus said. Many of his words are recorded here in the pages of Scripture that we can look and see what he said and understand what he said. But we don't want to miss the very fact that God sent Jesus. Just by him sending his son, it sends a message. Just by him sending his son, it sends a message. All right, my clicker is not working. There we go. So the very fact that Jesus come, comes sends a message. And what I believe it does is this was Jesus, our God, picking up his megaphone and speaking to us. And what he proclaimed is, I love you. I have not condemned you, but I have come. So the fact that Jesus would come is like a megaphone. All right, He's sending his son into humanity. That sends a message, not a message of condemnation, not a message that he wants to destroy us all, but rather a message that he wants to rescue us. And I think at times we can miss that fact that the fact that Jesus came sends a loud and clear message that God is for us, he loves us, and he wants to redeem us. And the bigness of who Jesus is, we can't miss this. So I want to show you another passage that comes out of the book of Colossians. Hebrews chapter 1 speaks to this, but Colossians, I think, lays it out more, a little clearer, if you will. So it says this, Christ Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. People could see him. They could touch him. They could feel him. They could hear him. They could see his emotion. He existed before anything, anything was created, and he is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Look at that passage and the importance of who Jesus is, the fact that he created all things. He created everything in the heavenly realms. He's supreme over all creation, and the fact that he would come in the form of a little baby should blow our minds that he would come for us, and then he would die on a cross and be ridiculed and mocked by people, men who he took part in creating, that he would give himself up for us. 
And the reason I use the megaphone, because if that doesn't send a loud and clear message that God is for us, I don't know what does. I don't know how God could be any clearer. So I think it's important that we note that and see that. If you jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 2, turn a couple pages with me, or one page anyway. It highlights this. The writer here highlights this in verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood. God's children, you and I. The Son also came or became flesh and blood. So Jesus came, put the human suit on. For only as a human being, so fully God, Jesus fully God, fully man, only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And so Jesus is fully God, fully God, fully man, came to free us from our sin. I've heard it said that you don't really understand something or grasp something until you can explain it to a child. And so what I wanted to do to highlight this point, because I think this point is so crucial, is I wanted to get some help from uh, my friend C.S. Lewis and then also my friends at Disney. I don't know anybody there, but it's what speakers say. Um, so there's a clip that comes out of C.S. Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. Probably most of you have heard of that. Uh, he wrote the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then Disney came along and bought the rights to that and made a movie to it. And there's a clip that I think illustrates this point so well that I want to show it to you. So I'll set it up for you in case you're not familiar with the, the movie. Uh, the lion in the clip is Aslan. He's the Jesus character, okay? The witch that comes into the scene, she is the, the devil or Satan. That's pretty easy to pick up on just by looking at her. And then Edmund is what you and I would be. He's, he's called the son of Adam or one of the sons of Adam in this clip. But he's in the position where you, are, you and I have been. And he's betrayed Aslan. And so now there's this battle over his blood. All right? So go ahead. You guys can play the clip. have a traitor in your midst, Aslan? His offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was built? Do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. Then you'll remember well that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is my property. Try and take him then. Do you really think that mere force will deny me my right? Little king. Aslan knows that unless I have blood as the law demands, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. That boy will die on the stone table. 
as is tradition. You dare not refuse me. Enough. I shall talk with you alone. She has renounced her claim on the son of Adam's blood. How do I know your promise will be kept? So you notice there at the end of that clip that Aslan isn't ex as excited nearly as everybody else is, and that's because he knows that he needs to go and give his life. He will shed his blood in Edmund's place. And so I think that clip illustrates this passage in verse 14. And though I don't completely and fully understand this, it says that by dying, and only by dying, could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And so I don't fully grasp why Satan has the power of death, but you see in that clip that the witch claims that she has some kind of rights, and it's only through dying that Jesus, or Aslan in that clip, could break that power. And so I think that that illustrates that really well. And so it's through his death, through Jesus' death and his resurrection, that we can be cleansed of our sins. And I would ask you this question, if Jesus has not cleansed you, if Jesus has not cleansed you, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, then how do you deal with sin? How do you deal with your sins? And see, what happens, I think, is some of us throw ourselves fully into religion, full weight, all that we have, we put it into religion. And Cliff was talking about this a little bit, and I, I mentioned it, the, the, the Greek Orthodox Church in Romania, what I saw there when I saw that, that people would come into the church and they would walk up to a dead man's bone, like literally there were bones in this box and they were covered by some neatly decorated gown or something like that. But there were bones in this box and they would come up and they would pray to this dead man's bones because he was a saint who was capable of some miracles while he was on earth. And so the bigger the miracles that they claimed that he performed, the more people would drive to this town to see this saint, to go into this particular monastery. And then they would go to the, the priest and they would pay money. They actually had a money box, like a, a person that was taking money there. And they would pay money. And the more money that you paid, the more that they would pray for you. 
And then they would make candles there, and they would, they would make these candles, and you could only buy these candles at this particular monastery, and then you would light the candles for those in your family or those loved ones who had passed away before you. And they would catch all of the wax from the candles, because, of course, then they could remake them and resell them. And I was just blown away by the, 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 the heaviness that I sensed on these people. But see, sometimes I think, or a lot of times, we can look at that and we can say, wow, that's terrible. But I think in our own lives, we can get stuck in a place of just religion. I'm doing these things because I'm trying to earn my way to God. I'm trying to earn my place with God. Whatever those things might be, we, we can try to put something in the place that it doesn't belong. And I, I would suggest to you this morning that if you are not finding life following Jesus, it may be because you are not following Jesus. It may be because you are following religion. In 1 John chapter 5, um, he says his commands, Jesus' commands, are not burdensome. And if you feel this heavy weight on you, if you feel like being a Christian is overwhelming you, then I would give you the invitation to come to Jesus because he tells us that we can lay all our anxiety, all our cares, cast all our burdens on him because his yoke is light. So we shouldn't have this heavy burden. Now I realize we go through seasons where maybe that happens, but if you've been walking a long time and you feel like being a Christian is a burden, then I would challenge you, look, look closely at your life, have you fallen deep into religion and not so deep into Jesus? Because Jesus sets us free from that. Because we realize that he's forgiven us. We realize that he has set us free. We realize that it's him that has cleansed us. And so what I'm, I'm saying here is I, I don't want you to, to get the idea that religion is, like religious practices are bad. Because you might look at me and you might say, well, what about this, Chris? You just opened up this message and told me that I'm supposed to, to follow along and read God's word. What about that? Isn't that just a religious practice? Well, I would ask you the question, why are you doing what you're doing? So if you're doing this, if you're reading this, and you're getting up each morning and you're reading God's word so that you can earn your place in his kingdom, then you have the wrong perspective. If you're coming here on a Sunday morning so you can earn your place in his kingdom then you have the wrong perspective. See, the reason that I read God's word, the reason that I come to be with you is because I want to draw closer to, in my relationship with God. I want to worship him because of what he's done for me. See, I read his word because he tells me in his word that he set me free from these things. And so my relationship with him is what dictates me doing these things that I do. So religious practice, if you hear me saying that religious practice is bad, then I'm not doing a good job communicating. But what you should hear me saying is that when you practice your religion, ask yourself, why are you doing it? Am I doing this because I am in love with Jesus and what he's done for me? Or am I doing this because I want to earn something from him? And every time, if you ask yourself that question, I think it will really, it will really help you. Now, others, so I said, how, what do you do with your sin? Well, some of us dive into religion. Others deny Jesus altogether. We just deny the existence of God. If we say God doesn't exist, all right, then there's no sin in the world. Then we don't have to deal with our sin because then I don't sin. 
See, if God doesn't exist, no Jesus, then I don't sin because there is no sin in the world. And the person who tells you that, I want you to kick them in the shins and steal their wallet. I'm serious. Because if there is no sin in the world, then why should that bother them? Because I'm not sinning. But see, I think it's disingenuous to say that there is no sin because we all have experienced it, right? All of us have experienced sin in some way. We've been sinned against. Somebody's sinned against us. They've hurt us. We've been mocked, maybe abused, maybe ridiculed, maybe wrongly accused. We've all been sinned against. And if we're really honest, we can say that we've all sinned against others. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that sin? Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Son, Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the the majestic God in heaven. So what does it say there? When he had cleansed us. Now, I'm not an English major, but what I see here is this is past tense. When he had other translation says when he had provided purification for our sin. That is past tense. When Jesus was on the cross, he proclaimed, it is finished. Meaning the purification of our sins was finished. It was provided through his blood shed on the cross. Purification of sin, past, present, future. All of our sins. In his sacrifice, we're taken care of. They were dealt with. And so now, for us, what we need to do when we we sin, all right, what we need to do is we need to confess it. First, we need to own it, repent of it, confess it, and then be done with it. That's all we can do. Now, there might be some other things, like physical things, depending on what your sin is and the damage that's done by it. But as far as between us and God, the only thing God tells us to do is that we need to repent of it, confess it, and move on. Acknowledge that we've been forgiven. And I'm a people pleaser at heart, and so I'm sensitive to this. I'm sensitive to the opinions of others. And so when I sin against other people, which I do from time to time, when I sin against other people, I'm really sensitive to how they feel about me because I want to make things right. But what... I'm getting at here is that this passage, what I'm, what I'm really finding is that the only thing that I can do is I can confess it, I can own it, I can repent of it and ask for forgiveness, and then as Paul says, I need to leave it behind me. We need to leave it go. And I sense for some of us this morning, we're at a place where we've, we've hurt those around us, we've hurt ourselves, and we cannot forgive ourselves. And I want to challenge this this morning because... This question rings out in my mind. Is the blood of Christ sufficient to purify me of my sin? That's a question you should write down and take some time to think about. Is the blood of Jesus Christ sufficient to purify me of my sin? Because if it is, there is no reason that we should walk in guilt and in shame and beating ourselves up. But if you can't answer this question Honestly and say, yes, the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse me of my sin. If you can't say yes to that, and you're continually beating yourself up, then it's likely that you feel like there's something else that you have to do to be forgiven of your sin. There's some penance you need to pay. 
But that's not what the scriptures teach. Because right here it says, when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. That means it is finished. He did not, Jesus did not tell the woman at the well, ooh, five husbands. Yeah, we can't, I can't help you with that. Right? He didn't look at the tax collector Zacchaeus, who was a Jewish man who was extorting money from his people, right? Padding his own pockets, giving money to the Romans. He didn't look at Zacchaeus and said, oh, I didn't know it was that bad. I don't think my blood's going to cover that one. Right? So whatever it is that you've been struggling with, whatever sin it is in your own heart, know that the blood of Jesus is sufficient. Repent of it. Confess of it. Get help if you need it, but move on. Don't keep beating yourself up because Jesus did not shed his blood on the cross. He did not go to the cross so that you could live in a place of shame and guilt. All right, next point. Got to move on. Verse 3 here, there's something that stands out. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of of God. In other translations, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of God, all right? The exact imprint of who God is. Now, this is interesting for me because as I get older, I'm realizing now I'm a, I'm a father. You know, we have six kids. I'm a father to six. And I never thought that I would say certain things that my dad said. And now I catch myself like, oh, wait a second. That's how dad said that. So I represent my father in some way. As I watch my kids play baseball, two, two of my kids play baseball, as I watch them play, what I see, I, there's sometimes when I have to just sit back and smile because what I see is I see myself out there 25 years ago playing the same game. And it's, it's very funny to me. But now I don't perfectly represent my dad. And my children, thankfully, don't perfectly represent me. There's a lot of their mother in them as well, which praise God for that. He's merciful. But Jesus is the perfect mirror of what God is like. So if you want to know what God is like, study Jesus. Study the Gospels. Look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Study them. What was God like? Who was he? Now, I want to make a point here because I just feel like I have to. There's so many times when I hear people talk about the Old Testament God. The God of the Old Testament, we want to ignore the Old Testament God because he was a God of wrath. And then we look at Jesus and we want to paint Jesus as meek and mild and, and almost feminize Jesus. And, and so we want, to, we want to somehow, it's almost as if we're saying God, like, God was an angry, mean father. And he kind of blew everything up in the Old Testament and screwed everything up. And then Jesus comes along like the kid who's trying to fix everything for his dad that just left this mess behind. Well, the scriptures don't give us that room. We can't say that. We can't say that because remember what we read in Colossians, Jesus was there from the beginning. He was there in the Old Testament, remember? He was there. And Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. So if we're honest... We need to give Jesus an honest look, and we need to look at the way he responds, and look at the way he responds to those who are humble at heart, the brokenhearted. The way Jesus responds to them is the way that God responds to us. But the proud, and pride is a tough one because it seeps into every little aspect of our lives. There's pride seeping in there, right? How does Jesus deal with the prideful? 
He's not real friendly with them. He calls them out. He actually calls them names. He's difficult. He's hard on them, right? Well, how are we towards God? And how is God towards us? Look at how Jesus responds to people, and you will see God's heart. All right? You will see God's heart. And I think we just need to make an, take an honest look at him. All right, one final point. We need to wrap this up. So, verse 4. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. So Jesus is far greater because of what we just went through. He came, he shed his blood, he died on the cross. He's far greater and more, far more sufficient than any other system. So I want to show you a passage here. It comes out of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Right? There's salvation in no one else. Jesus is the one who has accomplished it. Jesus is the name above all names. Jesus came and suffered and tasted what we have tasted. He's seen what we have seen. Remember, Jesus is the king of kings, right? He did not. He did not sit in his father's kingdom, put his feet up, and sip on a cold lemonade or whatever other drink you want to put in there. He did not do that when he could have. But he came to earth and he got his hands dirty and he got his feet dirty and he walked among us. And he tasted life and he went to the cross and he died. And that's why Jesus is the name that is above every other name. And that's why he is far greater than any other. I'll end with a passage here that comes out of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. Don't forget this, folks. When you are in the midst of a hard time in life, when you are struggling, maybe it's physical ailments, maybe it's something that you're suffering with physically, maybe it's emotional, maybe you're in a relationship that's a wreck, maybe you have a a child that's wayward, maybe you're approaching the end of life and you're thinking, I don't know if I'm ready for this, my body's falling apart, I've done things in my life that I regret, there's things that I wish I didn't do, things I wish I could have done that I didn't. When you're thinking that, go to this passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. He is able. Jesus sympathizes with us in the midst of our suffering. Don't ever forget that. And so now when you leave this place, know that Jesus is for you. He wants to take that burden off of your shoulders. He wants to relieve you of that. And so in the midst of all your pain and all your suffering, the place to go and what the author of Hebrews reminds us is that we should fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just give you honor and praise today. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. And Lord, how can we ever thank you enough for your son Jesus coming to earth in the form of a child, living a life 33 years and then dying on a cross for our sins. Father, help us in our unbelief. Help us to remember that the purification that you provided through Jesus is sufficient. Help us to experience your love, and then out of that, help us to love others and to follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.